Hey listeners, thanks for dropping in. I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. Hey, listeners. Welcome back to Buried Motives. We have some exciting news. That's right. We've reached over 10,000 listens. We have. So yay. Thank you to our listeners. And we wanted to say thank you to you by having a contest. So go to our social media pages and check out our giveaway that we have. Yes. One lucky listener will be at the receiving end of our contest. So definitely go check that out. We are so grateful for your listenership. We really are. You guys are awesome. And we hope you keep listening. But let's get into today's case. I'm excited for this case. (laughs) This is kind of like a continuation, a sequel (laughs) to a case that Melissa has already covered. She said she was going to come back to this and she is a woman of her word and she has. A couple of months ago, we covered Canada's youngest serial killer, Peter Woodcock. And today we're going to cover the man that helped him accomplish his last killing. Yeah, I'm excited to hear this. Peter Woodcock is the boy on the bike, if you're wondering which episode that was. And he was super creepy. He was a dirtbag, a special kind of dirtbag that murdered children. So the guy that you're going to be talking about was one of his accomplices, right, in that case. That's right, Bruce Hamill. And he was a dirtbag all on his own. Long before he helped Peter Woodcock murder Dennis Kerr, he was a proclaimed visionary killer. Ooh. Mm -hmm. I don't know his story at all. He's kind of one of those obscure killers in Canada. Other than his involvement with Peter Woodcock, I've not heard his past. But do you know what a visionary killer is? It's someone who's killing for a specific purpose, isn't it? That's right. It's a killer that commits murder because they believe they have received a command to do so. Usually this command comes in the form of some imagined internal or external voices where they experience it to be real. These are your killers that claim that God has ordered them to kill or that some outside force has encouraged them to do so. They are compelled to commit the act of killing for some outside influence, like the naked green women in the case of Canadian serial killer John Martin Crawford, or the Son of Sam killings. Yes, definitely. Do you think they really believe that someone's telling them to do this, or do they use that as an excuse afterwards? No, I think some of these people actually believe that they've been told or that they need to kill them. Right. Yeah. I agree. Sometimes they do. So these individuals are often suffering from either psychoses or some other form of mental illness. Visionary killers typically experience a psychotic break from reality that leads them to murder. Their murders are often more focused on the act of killing as opposed to the hunt for victims. So very different than other serial killers that we've covered. Right. That is why their victims are usually random, unsuspecting people. That's scary. Yeah, because it could be anybody. Right. But with Bruce today, I think you'll see that his visions of people he chooses to kill, there are some meanings behind his killings. Oh, so conveniently, he's been ordered to kill these people. That's right. So I'm not totally sold that he's actually Uh, a visionary killer. Because it's going to help him out if he offs these people. That's right. Ah, gotcha. There's definitely a motive behind each one of the people he kills. But the author of Cold North Killers, Lee Miller, proclaims that Bruce Hamill is the stereotypical foaming madman. Oh, no. Unpredictable in his rage and deadly in his execution. He sounds like a scary dirtbag. He's just the guy that flies off the handle all the time. Oh, and when they're so volatile like that, it's so unpredictable. Mm -hmm. And that's definitely Bruce. So Bruce Walderman Charles Hamill was born on November 27, 1956, in the Ottawa neighborhood of New Edinburgh. He was born to Gertrude and Wally Hamill, who were both older parents at the time of his birth. His mother was 32 and his father was 47. Oh. So really old for that time period. For that time. Not now. No. But back then, you were almost a grandma by that age. That's right. During delivery, Bruce's skull was fractured when the doctors used forceps to free him from the birth canal. Oh, so we're starting with a head injury right from birth. That's not good. No. It wasn't long after his birth that both of his parents would begin to realize that there was something very different about their son. From an early age, Bruce displayed behavioral problems. He had difficulty learning and wasn't able to speak in full sentences until the age of six. Oh, wow. He had frequent outbursts and temper tantrums. 
His parents sought out psychiatric help for their son, but eventually would fall into the pattern of denial and just make excuses for Bruce's behavior. Wow. Well, and if he's nonverbal up until the age of six, of course he's going to have tantrums. Mm -hmm. I remember with my girls when they were like little toddlers, right before they really start speaking well, they go through a lot of tantrums because they're frustrated not being able to express to you what they want or how they're feeling. And that was definitely Bruce. Yeah. So his parents began to just make excuses for him all over the place. So if Bruce got into a fight at school, it must have been the other child's fault. If a teacher had a complaint about Bruce's performance in school, it must have been something wrong with the teacher's attitude. (laughs) We all know parents like that. (laughs) Yep. Their attitude promoted the idea that nothing was really wrong with Bruce and that he wasn't really a dangerous individual at all. But sticking their head in the sand didn't make the problems go away at all. Surprising how that happens. But it's also shocking how many people have that coping mechanism. That you just pretend it's not happening. Right. It's somebody else's problem. Yep. And if I just ignore it, it's going to get better or it's going to go away. Mm -hmm. Bruce's troubles continued into his teenage years when he began to use drugs. This just made his violent outbursts even worse. During his high school years, he was referred by his school to the Oshawa General Hospital for psychiatric assessment because of his extreme irritability and frequent fights. At the time, he was diagnosed with a temporal lobe dysfunction associated with explosive personality. Yikes. Mm -hmm. At the age of 19, Bruce would quit school after completing just grade 11. He joined the militia and served with Robert Poulin, who would later become a murderer as well. Oh my. The militia wasn't really Bruce's thing, though. The repetitive drills bored him, and he showed no initiative to perform well in any of his tasks. When rumors about Bruce's sexuality surfaced, his only friend in the militia, Robert, would start a fistfight with him and refuse to have anything more to do with him. Aww. Mm-hmm. So as soon as his friend heard that he might be gay, he He just just, cut ties. That's right. He didn't want to be associated with him at all. And this was apparently like the only friendship that Bruce had ever created. That's terrible. Mm -hmm. After leaving the army, Bruce would later say that he went to a friend's house and smoked marijuana and drank. When his friend passed out, Bruce felt that he was in complete control and that his friend was at his mercy. Oh, no. He took a knife and ran it across the torso of the passed out man but stopped before satisfying his urge to stab the sleeping friend. So he didn't actually cut him. Nope, he didn't cut him. He just oh, ran okay. his knife across him. That's so creepy. Mm-hmm. Like you're sleeping, you're passed out, and you have no idea that your friend is running this knife along your abdomen. And if any of you have checked out our Peter Woodcock case, that's exactly what Peter does to Bruce later on. That's true. Mm-hmm. When I heard this in Bruce's past, I was like, oh, had he told Peter about this or... Maybe, because what are the chances? Yeah. But that's like very karmatic. (laughs) So interesting, right? Yeah. I don't know if karmatic's a word if I just made that up (laughs) because I use it a lot in my cases. We're declaring it it a word. It's a neologism. It's buried mode of slang. (laughs) That December after leaving the militia, Bruce beat a 12-year-old severely because he felt slighted by the child. What? Mm-hmm. By a 12-year-old. By a 12-year-old. Did that make you feel big and strong, Bruce? He did. He just couldn't control his temper in any way. Yeah, that's clear. And just two weeks before he would commit his first murder, Bruce went to Liskar Collegiate School and chased around a boy from the school and tried to stab him. In what? open daylight, Bruce felt that he had been slighted by that boy as well. In the three days following the incident, Bruce had worked himself into such a fantasy about how the boy had threatened him that the only thing he could think to do was to kill him. That's crazy. And I'm wondering what these experiences are that he's calling being slighted. Yeah, they're just little tiny things that happen. Yeah. Once when I was a teenager, I almost got stabbed for giving a girl a quote unquote dirty look in a Mac store, in a convenience store. It was pretty crazy crazy. times. And I don't even remember looking at her, but apparently I gave her a dirty look and her boyfriend had to tackle her to the floor as she was running up behind me with a knife. And that sounds like just what Bruce would do. Yeah. Because this boy from the school, he didn't even remember what he had done to Bruce. Like he didn't even know who Bruce was when Bruce was chasing him around the schoolyard. It's crazy. Maybe this girl was his sister. (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) But this boy narrowly escaped with his life. That's crazy. Mm Mm-hmm. Bruce's instabilities were becoming more and more apparent and were only made worse when he returned to live with his parents after spending some time in the militia. His mom had her own mental health struggles. Gertrude was a paranoiac and held several strange views that the world was out to get her family. 
Gertrude would go as far to tell Bruce not to take his prescribed medication because she needed to protect him from the outside world. Oh, well, no wonder he's so volatile. As a child, they had sought psychiatric help, but then they just put their head in the sand and they refused to follow any of the doctor's recommendations. And even though Bruce had been prescribed medication to calm down his violent urges, his mom wouldn't let him take them. That's wild. Mm -hmm. So she's going to take some responsibility in some of this then too, because this is your child and you're telling them not to take the medication when they are in your care. No, she sees nothing wrong with it, but she's paranoid herself. That's true. And so she's obviously not thinking right. Right. But this was the environment that he grew up in. Yeah, he was being raised this way and taught it. Mm -hmm. And not only is nothing ever your fault, it's always somebody else's fault, but you shouldn't trust anybody around you. That's a sad way to live Mm -hmm. and to raise your children. Yeah. By the time that Bruce was in his late teens, his mother had become so delusional that he had actually started to act like the parent in the family. Oh. And he's not stable at all. No, that's scary. So Bruce began to believe that it was his responsibility to protect his mother and their family. In February 1977, Gertrude was in the middle of a good old-fashioned henpecking contest with Betty Wenseluff, the 58-year-old neighbor from next door. (laughs) Yeah, I don't imagine she'd be a real peach to live next to. No. She just always felt like the world was out to get them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Does not make good neighbor material. No. The fight between the neighboring women started when Gertrude felt entitled to Betty's house. (laughs) The neighbors had lived beside each other for over 20 years and had been friendly in the past, sharing dinners and family celebrations together. But Gertrude had got it in her head that Betty's house was the perfect place for Bruce's sister Vivian to live. When Betty refused to sell her house, Gertrude became incensed and complained nonstop to Bruce about the nerve of her neighbor for refusing her request. Wow, that's some entitlement right there. (laughs) (laughs) My neighbor has a really nice house. Should I go tell them it should belong to me? That's right. They should sell it to you. You should just sell me your house so that my daughter can move in next door. Crazy. That's what she wanted. And she just really built up this idea with Bruce that this woman is like trying to ruin our lives because she won't let your sister live next to us. Right. And they're a victim because of this neighbor. Mm Mm-hmm. So is Bruce going to retaliate onto the neighbor? Absolutely. His first victim. Mm -hmm. On the evening of February 28th, Gertrude placed a call to Betty again, asking her to sell her home and became enraged once again when Betty refused. Bruce overheard the whole conversation and in his mind, Betty became a threat to his family. That night, Bruce left his house and walked the streets around his home, becoming more and more enraged at Betty. He just kept building it up in his mind more and more and kept imagining scenarios where she was actually a threat to his family. Oh, and you can see how that can build. We can all do this in our mind with different scenarios is going over and over and making it like a mountain out of a molehill, right? That's right. We've talked about how sometimes we have dreams. Right. And we're angry at somebody (laughs) in our dreams. And that continues the next day. Like we can't shake that feeling. Yeah. And so for Bruce, this was what was happening is that he just was continuing to fixate on it and could not get it out of his head that this neighbor Betty was hurting his mom and was a threat to their family. Yeah, was out to get them. And poor Betty, she's just going about her day, making a cup of tea, doing the crossword, not knowing that outside her neighbor's son is stewing and becoming more and more enraged with her. That's right. If she had known, she probably would have just sold the house. (laughs) (laughs) Here, have my house. Not worth the aggravation. No. But they had been friendly for 20 years. These weren't people that didn't know each other. Wow. Mm -hmm. If you can turn on your neighbor of 20 years that you've been friendly with, yeah, you said they had dinners and stuff, then you can turn on anybody. It wasn't like they were neighbors that were constantly bickering at each other or anything like that. Yeah. They had been friends. Oh. And it wasn't until Betty refused to sell her house that animosity began. Because then she became paranoid that her neighbor was out to get her. That's right. And projected that onto Bruce. Mm -hmm. So at 5 a.m., Bruce watched Betty leave her house and walk across the back alley to Christian Street School, where she worked as a part-time cleaner. He made the decision then to eliminate the threat. He climbed over his backyard fence and chased her down. When Betty saw him coming, she ran for the school, but she was not fast enough. Bruce viciously stabbed her in the abdomen and chest 36 times. That is a rage killing. He lost it. As quickly as he had killed the woman he had known his whole life, he returned home and acted like nothing had happened. 
On his way home, all he could think about was buying some potato chips. Me too, Bruce. Me too. <laughs> I'm always thinking about eating potato <laughs> chips. But it was a no, big task. In all seriousness, like that's just showing no regret. No, no guilt at all. Doesn't even register. He just had done his duty. Yeah. And he's probably walking home all blood covered. Mm-hmm. Hmm, what do I want for breakfast? That's right. Potato, potato chips. chips. Betty Wentzliff was a beloved motherly figure in the community and was found at 645 later that morning by the school superintendent right on the steps of the school. Oh, I'm so glad the kids didn't find her. The police investigation into Betty's death showed that she had no known enemies, and the crime was not believed to be a robbery gone wrong because she still had a small amount of money in her pockets, and there was no signs of sexual abuse. The police were stumped about who had murdered her or who would have reason to murder her. But during their canvassing in the neighborhood, two days after the murder, they knocked on Wally and Gertrude's door and started to ask Bruce questions. His parents had gone to the grocery store and he was the only one home at the time. And he's an adult, so they can question him. Bruce acted so suspiciously during this meeting that it tipped the police off immediately and they arrested him on the spot. Well, they're trained for this too, Mm -hmm. right? We've said this before. This might be your first murder, but it's not their first investigation. That's right. But to arrest him on the spot that day? Yeah, they had to have real probable cause. Mm -hmm. This should be end of story. Yeah. (laughs) So the police found the murder weapon dismantled in three different places in the Hamels home. The blade, the handle, and the guard had been hidden in separate locations around the home and in the garbage. I don't understand that, honestly, hiding it in different places around your house. No. (laughs) It's in your house. They're going to find it. I could see different places around the neighborhood. Sure. But why do that in your house? That would be Bruce's only attempt to cover up his crime. And then his parents come home to find their son gone, hauled off in handcuffs, and the police searching their house. And their son who can do no wrong. That's right. Did Gertrude know that Bruce had murdered Betty for her? No. While Bruce's mother denied knowing anything about the murder... His father told an Ottawa Citizens reporter that he had had a premonition that something was wrong because the morning of the murder, he woke up around 6 a.m. to find Bruce already dressed and in the kitchen, a behavior that was out of the norm for Bruce, who preferred to sleep in until noon. Ah, well, he had gotten up to murder at 5 a.m. Well, he had never went to bed. Right. Right. He had been walking around the neighborhood all night long, just seething and building this rage against his neighbor. Well, and how ironic then that he was up and ready for his day. Like you think he'd come home, shower and crash then because he was up all night. He was still too hyped up. Wow. When taken into custody, Bruce didn't bother denying that he had murdered Betty. When he was allowed to see his parents, he told his mother, I did it. Probably thinking I did this for you, mom. Thinking (laughs) she's going to be like, oh, thank you, son. All proud of him. Yeah. When questioned by the police why he killed Betty, Bruce said, she made my mother mad. She was mean and rude and very insulting. Oh, man. There'd be a lot of dead people in this world if that was rightful cause to murder somebody. (laughs) (laughs) Wouldn't it? And so this is where I start to question why he has the term of a visionary killer. Because to me, there was a very clear reason that he had to kill Betty. True. The definition is that an outside force influenced their decision. Well, and and his mother did. He would not have killed Betty just randomly. It Mm -hmm. was because his mom was upset about her. But it wasn't until I started to read his actual nursing notes from his time spent in the mental health facilities that I would start to understand why they call him a visionary killer. Okay. And so this case is super fascinating to me because it's one of the rare times that we actually get to see observational notes. Usually when we find psychiatric reports on a patient, it's the concluding part of it. But this one actually had their observational notes in it. Ooh, that is cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, usually we get the court summaries of the evaluations. Yeah, but not with this one. Ooh, interesting. Bruce was charged with first-degree murder and was sent to Penetanguishene for a 60-day assessment to see if he was fit to stand trial. Everybody kind of noticed that there was not something quite right with Bruce. On March 6, he was observed to be in a paranoid state and was considered a suicide risk. Bruce continually banged his head against the wall and the sink and cried to be able to see his parents. During his assessment, he was described as being unpredictable and explosive in nature. 
He was upset that the Ottawa police had not informed him about the nature of the Oak Ridge facility that he had been sent to, and he made claims that there was a time bomb ready to go off in him. Oh. On April 4th, Bruce told a social worker that he had attacked Betty because he believed that she was a threat to his family, so he never drops the story that she was actually going to harm his family. And I think he honestly probably believed that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. On April 29th, 1977, just a couple of months after the murder, Bruce was deemed fit to stand trial, even though he had been diagnosed with a personality disorder and was found to be immature, explosive, and possibly suffering from temporal lobe epilepsy. Which happened at birth, I'm assuming. Yeah. On June 30th, 1977, an assessment done at the Royal Ottawa Hospital revealed Bruce suffered from frontal lobe brain damage resulting in epilepsy. It was believed that this brain damage resulted in his personality disorders and his tendency towards aggression. A week later, a neurologist confirmed that the old frontal depressed fracture and potential epileptic changes on the temporal lobe region of the brain were a direct result from his delivery. Mm. All of this was deemed to contribute to Bruce's imaginings that he was being threatened all the time, and this is what caused him to act out so violently towards others. Well, and then you can see having a paranoid mother raising a boy under these circumstances. It was just a bomb waiting to explode. Absolutely. So she intervened. It would not allow him to actually get any help from any psychiatrist or anything like that or to take any prescribed medication. Which is really unfortunate because maybe he wouldn't have turned into the murderer that he was if he was being treated properly. Hard to say. Reserve judgment until you get to the end. Okay, but I'm a little judgy. (laughs) (laughs) In a report by the psychologist, Bruce's angry outbursts fit into two categories. The first was an immediate explosive reaction to any unanticipated touch. A simple accidental bump in a hallway would set him into a violent temper tantrum. It's a wonder really that he was able to function at all in any high school setting. Right. Could you imagine walking through the halls with this kid? And they found that any touch to his body would just set him off if he wasn't expecting it. That's scary. The second category consisted of perceived threats that were fantasized. And this is where the visionary killer comes in. Mm. The visions that he had in his head resulted in physical manifestations. His body would react by the gradual building of a cold sweat that would flood his body, leaving his palms sweaty, his mouth dry, and a tingling sensation inside his body and the need to urinate frequently. Bruce described that his rage was so intense sometimes that he would have chest pains and see white spots in front of his eyes. He would become unable to relax, his head would feel weird, and he would become extremely restless. And these feelings wouldn't end until he attacked whatever the vision had said was causing the anger to build. That's terrifying. Mm -hmm. It's terrible that he's going through that, but then terrifying that that's what's happening. For anybody around him? Yeah. Oh, man. But it gives us some understanding as to why this is happening. On April 29, 1977, after several violent episodes while incarcerated and awaiting trial, Bruce had to be sent back to Oak Ridge for another 60-day assessment period. So he was deemed fit to stand trial. He was sent to prison. And while he was in prison, he had so many violent episodes that they actually sent him back for another 60-day assessment period. (laughs) They're like, you guys need to relook at this guy because they're thinking something's got to be wrong. Yeah. They were like, "Uh, are you really (laughs) sure about this one? Because he's insane. Right. When he arrived at Oak Ridge that day, he had a black eye and was covered in abrasions from all of his altercations with the other prisoners. Oh, man. Bruce blamed the altercations on the other inmates and on the police at the Ottawa jail, much the same way that his parents had blamed his classmates during his school years. Yeah, it's a pattern. He just sounds so scary, honestly. (laughs) I think the author of Cold North Killers had it absolutely right. He is your stereotypical foaming madman. Yeah, he sounds like a wild rabid dog he's a scary dirt bag he is. <laughs> dr russell fleming interviewed bruce several times over bruce's assessment periods and came to the conclusion again that the killer was legally sane at the time he stabbed betty and he was fit to stand trial wow when bruce had met with dr fleming he was very vocal about wanting him to know why he committed the crime 
and that he had flipped out dozens of times over the years. Bruce believed that he belonged in a psychiatric hospital and did not want to be returned to prison. During one of his assessments, he said, If something had been done for me, if the medication had been stronger, maybe it wouldn't have ever happened. I guess I have a bad temper. My emotions go nuts on me. I can't go to prison. I wouldn't last a second. Sounds like he's panicking a little. Yeah. And in his panic, he actually sounds a lot more rational than his thought processes are. Yeah. This is why this doctor thought that he was fit enough to stand trial. Right. Because he is showing, like you said, those thought processes. Mm Mm-hmm. That there's reasons why he committed the crime. Even to have the forethought that the mental health facility is going to help me more than prison. Yeah. And so these are the statements that he's making to Dr. Fleming and why he then proclaims him fit to stand trial. Interesting. Bruce's trial began January 9th, 1988 and lasted less than a week. There was a parade of psychologist testimony armed with plastic brains and medical opinions. Six different doctors argued if Bruce was criminally responsible for killing Betty. They didn't even bother arguing whether he had or not because he had confessed. Right. But the argument was over whether he was criminally responsible. And in Canada, fit to stand trial is very different than being declared insane or criminally responsible. Right. And that's why it only took a week. In Bruce's defense, four of the doctors agreed that Bruce suffered from an explosive personality disorder and had damage to the temporal lobe of his brain, the part that controls our emotions. But whether that disorder sparked Bruce's crimes was another question. One psychiatrist agreed absolutely it was, while another felt that Bruce's strange behavior at the time of the murder was evidence that he was having an epileptic fit brought on by his brain damage because he couldn't remember the amount of times that he had stabbed her and it was just a total break with reality. And so one of them actually declared it to be an epileptic fit. Oh. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. The two psychiatrists for the prosecution fought the temporal lobe theory, calling Bruce's actions the work of just fast fists, and that Bruce's reasons for the murder were maybe no more peculiar than any other motive for killing. So they clearly identified that he had a reason to kill Betty, and so it wasn't an insane thought process that drove him to do it. Yeah, that's tricky. Mm -hmm. Because he did stew about it and made the conscious decision to do it. A neurologist would argue that there was no way to prove any of their theories as to what had turned Bruce into a madman. (laughs) Maybe he's the correct one. (laughs) Like, you guys, you can all have your theories, but do we really know? And sometimes we just don't. And this left the jury to wade through medical slang and terminology to determine if Bruce had been, in fact, sane at the time he committed the crime. Oh, man, that'd be tough. Now, I'm really curious what they decided. This is one of the downfalls to our judicial system because the subject of mental illness and responsibility are so hard to determine and are never clear cut. It's kind of ridiculous and unfair to leave that judgment in the hands of jurors who aren't educated or familiar with mental illnesses to decide the fate when even extensively trained professionals can't agree on it. Yeah, I was just going to say that. It's really hard when you're getting expert opinions that are differing. How do you know who to believe? And so they had these six individuals all presenting different theories about whether he was sane or insane at the time of the crime. And I couldn't imagine making that decision. No, that would be hard. Bruce was found not guilty by reason of insanity for killing Betty Wensliff on January 17th at the age of 21. It took an 11 men and one woman jury two hours to reach their verdict. The whole time the trial proceeded, and even when the verdict was being read, Bruce showed no emotion at all and often made the jury members feel uncomfortable when he stared them down from his seat. (laughs) Oh, man, that would freak me the heck out. Uh Uh-huh. But he is behaving in a way that maybe suggests that he was not in the right frame of mind and... And continues not to be in the right frame of mind. Yeah, and even physically, like you talked about his brain scans, how interesting they were. Mm -hmm. Like there's obviously some things that are out of his control going on here. But he still murdered Betty in a brutal, vicious way. He's just a madman. A dirtbag, but an absolute stark, raving mad madman. (laughs) Bruce was sent to Oak Ridge three days later, and it would become his home for the next, how many years, do you think? Well, until he meets Peter. (laughs) No, actually. Is that where him and Peter meet? Uh, they meet at the Brockville Hospital. Oh, yeah. okay. So they do meet at a mental <laughs> hospital, but it's the next one. I was one. like, this has got to be where we yeah. enter Peter. 
it would become his home for the next three years. So Oak Ridge, if you remember, is the maximum security mental health facility yeah. in Ontario. And he would only spend three years there. Three? Mm-hmm. That is not long enough. Until December 9th, 1980. Wow. That does not seem enough. It doesn't. What Bruce goes through at Oak Ridge is pretty crazy. But then what happens to him for his reform is even more crazy. So as we go through Bruce's experiences at Oak Ridge, I want you to pay attention to the nursing notes that say how unpredictable and violent he is. So I'm really curious then why he gets released. It seems like a no-brainer not to let him go. And we know it's not something that you can fix. You can't fix the actual brain damage created by that depressed fracture. Yeah. All right. During his time at Oak Ridge, he underwent some of the same very questionable therapies that Peter Woodcock had undergone. Bruce was frequently sent to the MAP program because of his dangerous and aggressive behavior. MAP was the motivational and attitude-altering treatment program where psychiatric patients were forced to stay within a three-foot square and follow very specific rules of conduct. A patient was only allowed to move and respond in a prescribed way when given permission to do so. The patient would have to maintain perfect behavior for 14 consecutive days in order to be allowed to leave the group setting. You had to stand there for 14 days? Mm-hmm. And if you sat, you had to ask permission to sit. For the first days of the treatment, the patient would be naked and afforded no items of comfort. But as the client submitted to the prescribed behavior, they gradually earned things like a cushion to sit on or their clothes at specific time intervals. So like by day six, they could have their clothes. If they were having conversations in the prescribed way, if they were holding their bodies in the prescribed way and not having any emotional outburst, if they left their three-foot square, they had to start over again. It's unbelievable to me that this is happening in the late 70s. Like we're not talking about the beginning of medicine when they're trying to figure this stuff out. But this was actually happening late 70s in Canada. Mm-hmm. Like that seems more like a torture regime than anything else. Crazy. Yeah. I just can't see how that would be a helpful treatment. It doesn't seem that it helped at all. There were several nursing notes entered into his charts about his paranoia increasing after treatments and that as a patient, he did not do well, often alternating between crying and angry outbursts. Hmm. There are numerous reports of Bruce lashing out against other patients and staff at the institution, often saying that he was protecting others by beating them up. When questioned about the incidences and the inconsistencies between his version of events and the versions of those he attacked, he would often state that nobody else could be trusted. Hmm. And so he just had a completely different view of what was going on in the world than anybody else around him. He was described as being an impulsive and insecure individual that trusted very few people. There was one incident in February 1978 when Bruce might have attempted suicide by cutting his neck with a razor blade. <gasps> like a shaving razor blade. The medical reports call the wound superficial with very little bleeding, but Bruce reports that he wanted out of Oak Ridge's hostile environment. So he calls it a suicide attempt, but they don't ever refer to it as a suicide attempt because it was such a minor cut. Hmm. But Bruce goes on later to say that, yeah, I was trying to get out of Oak Ridge. It was such an awful place to be. Or was he trying to do it to manipulate himself out of there? Oh, maybe. Right? Like, I'm just going to make it look like I won't scratch very much of the surface, but make it look like it. Because when you see a gash on someone's neck that's self-inflicted, that will cause you to sometimes freak out, right? Mm -hmm. And so maybe that was his plan. I don't know. Hard to say. He's such a madman that I don't think that he has that forethought to kind of put anything like that together. But he's also such a madman that if he wanted to slit his throat and kill himself, he probably could have done the job. Yeah. And so I think more what happened is he probably cut his neck shaving. They had to treat it. And then later on, when people asked oh. him about it, then he's like, yeah, I tried to commit suicide. Right. Because it's actually during a provincial inquest into Oak Ridge and their practices where all of these reports come out. Huh. I'm actually even surprised that he was given a razor to do his own shaving. Mm-hmm. Over and over again in his chart, he is called unpredictable and very dangerous. In December 1980, Bruce was transferred to Brockville Psychiatric Hospital, a lower level security hospital even though he had all of these reports of being unpredictable and very dangerous. It was there that he underwent an assessment in preparation for the Ontario Review Board hearing. During the evaluation on July 1981, it was noted that Bruce experienced very different moods when he was not taking his anticonvulsant medication. Hmm. 
and that it was believed that Bruce was only mildly aware of his inappropriate behavioral issues and had limited self-awareness. Yeah, that seems clear. Over the next two years, though, that assessment would change dramatically. Bruce said that there came a time while he was at Brockville that a change in his thinking happened and that he was able to learn to control his outburst. And this change was enough that on March 2nd, 1983, less than two years later, he was transferred to the Royal Ottawa Hospital and participated in outpatient programming. Wow. And it sounds like what that change was is that he was on medication. Okay. Mm -hmm. He was again assessed by Dr. Bradford and Bruce was found to have stabilized. Bruce would be discharged of his lieutenant governor's warrant in 1986 and was no longer required to remain in hospital or in a treatment program. During his discharge, there was no indication given that Bruce had any intention of discontinuing his medication. Instead, he was described as a highly functioning individual. Well, that took a turn. I know. That I was not expecting. In a two-year span. So those were some miracle drugs. They found an anticonvulsant that actually started to work, and he totally flipped it around. Wow. Mm Mm-hmm. When he's on his meds, he was a high-functioning individual who was highly motivated to better his life. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Because then that does take us more towards the ideation that he's not criminally responsible. Not at all. Because yeah. he wasn't on meds at the time, so he didn't understand what was happening. He understood at the time that killing Betty was wrong and, or sorry, killing was wrong, but he didn't make that connection to the actual person that he was murdering. Right. Mm-hmm. But since we're talking about him today, I'm assuming he does not stay on those medications. (laughs) (laughs) So nine years after killing Betty, Bruce actually had no criminal record at all. This would set the stage for the death of Dennis Kerr. In 1988, Bruce was a free man to pursue new careers and relationships. He got a job as a security guard at a senior's home and even at an Ottawa courthouse. At a courthouse? Mm -hmm. As a security guard. That's wild. (laughs) Canada, come on. Apparently, I know we're nice and all, but... <laughs> Bruce even got married to a Filipino woman and fathered a daughter during this time period. Huh. All the while continuing his long-standing relationship with Peter Woodcock, the child serial killer who he had met at Brockville. Oh. Even though he had completed his time at Brockville Hospital, he continued to go back and meet with Peter Woodcock. And I don't want to go into Peter's very disturbing history since we've already covered it in a past episode, but it's sufficient to say that he was a manipulative dirtbag. For sure. If you haven't listened to it, I would suggest any of our listeners to go back and listen to that one. Yeah. Super manipulative. But I will go over the details that are available about the crime they committed together from Bruce's perspective. Okay. For Bruce, the stress of having a wife and a new baby at home were too much for his fragile emotional grip on life. His wife was not appreciative of his visits to see Peter, and their fights were becoming more explosive. Yeah, can you blame her? Yeah. Where are you going, honey? Oh, to visit this child killer. Yeah. But he's my friend. Well, he was his sexual partner. (laughs) On top of all that, Bruce was actually having financial difficulties as well. And so he decided that he might take a break from his medications. He had been doing really, really well, and he felt that maybe he didn't need to continue with his medication regime. Oh, that is sad. Mm -hmm. Bruce found comfort in his visits with Peter because Peter promised him that he knew a way to solve all of his problems. Peter had imagined up an intergalactic gang he referred to as the Brotherhood. This gang was all-powerful and had the ability to write Bruce's life. They could fix his problems with his wife and his financial situation. Bruce told fascinating stories of the Brotherhood's powers that would make his psychiatric disorders disappear and would bring his father back to life. Best of all, Bruce would be promised a seat on the 2011 Starship. Right. It's all coming back to me. Uh (laughs) Peter convinced Bruce that all he needed to do to gain the Brotherhood's favor was to ritually kill a victim of Peter's choosing. Well, and you can see how he would be so desperate at this time in his life to fix what's happening. Mm Mm-hmm. He started to kind of fall down a slippery slope. And on that slippery slope, he decided to stop taking his medications. Yeah, and slid right into the arms of Peter Woodcock. It really makes you think, what does make a madman? 
Right. On the morning of July 13, 1991, Bruce left his apartment on the eighth floor wearing jeans and a t-shirt, carrying a pipe wrench wrapped in newspaper. Following Peter's instructions, he made his way to a Canadian tire store to purchase the needed hunting knife for the ritual. It took him over an hour to select the knife, and then for good measure, he purchased a hatchet as well and a sleeping bag. He was unsure how long it would take for the Brotherhood to come and get him after the ritual was performed, and he wanted to be prepared. Oh, so crazy. It is. He believes that this intergalactic spaceship is going to come for him. And that just shows where his mental well-being is Mm -hmm. at that time anyways. In the weeks leading up to this day, Bruce had stopped talking to his wife completely and wasn't speaking to anybody but Peter and the voices in his head. Oh, so Peter's just got a hold on him. Mm-hmm. One night we saw what he could build up in his head to kill Betty. Yeah, just in one night. In just one night. But this yeah. was taking place over several weeks that he had stopped talking to everybody else. Wow. And I've said it so many times, but I'm just so fascinated when dirtbags align like this, <laughs> you know? It's so and crazy. Yeah. It's just so crazy to me when two get together. Because mm-hmm. one is unbelievable in itself right and then you get two together murdering it's so fascinating it's horrible but it's just fascinating to me that it happens and happens often yeah bruce's next stop was the drugstore where he purchased some nidol as instructed to do by peter on his way to brockville psychiatric hospital bruce stopped in a grove of trees to pack his supplies in a less noticeable way concealing the knife and the hatchet inside the sleeping bag. He was then ready to sign Peter Woodcock out for his first pass that wouldn't be supervised by a member of the hospital staff. Because Bruce's record did not show his past crimes, and because he was a guard at the courthouse, he seemed like the perfect chaperone for the dirtbag Peter Woodcock. Absolutely. I would trust him if Mm -hmm. I found out he was a security guard at the court. And his criminal record check was clean. Yeah, Mm -hmm. Yeah, there would be no reason for them to not trust Bruce. But we know there's every reason to not trust Bruce. (laughs) That afternoon, Bruce would sign Peter out of the hospital on two different occasions. The first pass, around 2 p.m., they used to set up their supplies in a secluded area of the hospital grounds, known as a makeout spot for the residents of the hospital. (laughs) On the second pass, a three-hour one, they then waited for their victim to meet them at the spot of their choosing. Bruce was feeling that old, cold sweat and familiar tingle as he anticipated the release of his anger. Oh, no. The victim for the ritual was all Peter's choosing. Bruce had never met him before and was unaware that Dennis Kerr, a 27-year-old, had been a man that had spurned Peter's sexual advances. He was also a patient at Brockville, and Peter had wanted Dennis to be one of his partners. Yeah, he wanted him to be part of the Brotherhood, right? Yeah. And if you recall, Peter used this Brotherhood to convince other lower functioning patients of the mental hospital to perform sexual acts on him so that they could enter the Brotherhood. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, my gosh. Peter had come up with a story about loaning money to Dennis for a drum set to lure him into the sumac grove where their weapons waited. When Dennis arrived, Bruce hid in the bushes until Peter had knocked Dennis unconscious. Then, along with Peter, Bruce used a knife and a hatchet to hack at Dennis's still form. They stabbed and sliced his body more than a hundred times. Oh. In his killing frenzy, Bruce forgot that he was supposed to rape Dennis before he died as part of the ritual that Peter had told him would gain him entry into the Brotherhood. When the two killers realized Dennis had succumbed to his injuries before being raped, they decided that taking turns sodomizing his dead body would be sufficient for the Brotherhood. Oh. They did all of this while covered in blood and chanting made-up ritualistic words. That's just so scary. That's my word for today. It's scary. (laughs) Just envisioning what that would be like. I can't even. Just brings to mind that stereotypical madman, right? Yeah. When the ritual was completed, Bruce took the night all that he had bought and crawled into the sleeping bag and fell asleep naked. And he'd be all sticky from blood and just, I don't know how you can just do all of that and then go to sleep. But I mind you, he was able to stab Betty all those times. And afterwards, he just thought about buying chips. Yeah. When he awoke in the pouring rain, the mosquitoes and the biting bugs of the night were swarming him, attracted to Dennis's congealed blood that covered his naked body. He was disorientated and could not find Peter anywhere. He began to thrash around in the bush, and that is how the police found him, not far from Dennis's mutilated body. Can you imagine being the police finding that? This naked man covered in blood, thrashing around in the woods? Just having a complete 
fit trying to get all of these bugs off of him. Yeah, I would too. When the police flashed their spotlight into the grove, Bruce believed that it was the Brotherhood that had come to take him away. Right. He screamed out to the police, are you here to take me? And they're like, yep, Yep. to jail, buddy. Well, he told them, I'm ready. I've done everything you wanted. Where do I go? Is your vehicle here? (laughs) That is sad. He's just so delusioned. And it's always shocking to me when I read through his case notes because before he went on medication, he was the same outrageous, irrational madman that attacked everybody. And then he went on medication and went to this fully functioning, had a family, held down a job, yeah, went off medication and was straight back into this absolutely delusional, visionary world that he honestly believed that there was a spaceship coming to collect him because he had killed Dennis. Wow, just such a frenzied state. Mm -hmm. It's just unfortunate that it didn't have to be that way. Not at all. When the police came closer, Bruce, recognizing that this was not the promised brotherhood, but the police instead flew into a murderous rage. He ran towards Peter, who was with the police, and had told them everything. It took four police officers to cuff Bruce because he was in such a state. Wow. Bruce was taken straight to the protective custody unit at Brockville, where his psychotic rage continued for hours. Oh, man. Well, think how betrayed he'd feel. He Mm -hmm. just murdered this stranger thinking that it was going to save him. From the reports, it looks like there were times where he understood that Peter had betrayed him and that the police had gotten him and he was mad about that. And then there were other times that he still believed that the Brotherhood was coming to get him. Like he had no concept between reality and what the visions he had made up in his head were. So he had just spiraled out of control Mm -hmm. because he killed Betty with just a perceived betrayal and threat and now here's peter who actually did betray him so you can only imagine how much more exponential his rage would have been it was just uncontrollable on december 9th 1992 bruce hamill was once again put to trial for first degree murder and for a second time in his life was found not criminally responsible for cold-blooded murder he expressed no signs of remorse at the court proceedings he was sent to oak ridge to live until he was no longer a danger to the public Oh, man. At the time of Dennis Kerr's murder, Bruce had gone off his medication, stating that he had wanted to take a vacation from the medication Tigertal to see how he did without it. And it is very likely that if ever given the chance again at freedom, Bruce could again stop taking his medication and his visions and voices would return to him. And that's what's scary about it. I know we've talked about it in previous cases that, yes, they may have this mental illness that's causing them to do these things. But then there has to be some kind of monitoring to make sure that they're taking their medications so Absol- it doesn't happen again. Absolutely. Because we know they're capable of it. Mm-hmm. We're not saying all mentally ill people are going to do these types of things, but the ones we're talking about do, mm-hmm. and they are capable. In Ontario now, the Ontario Review Board annually reviews the status of every person who has been found to be not criminally responsible or who is considered unfit to stand trial for criminal offenses on account of a mental disorder. So this board is established under the Criminal Code of Canada. The board is made up of judges, lawyers, psychiatrists, psychologists, and public members appointed by the lieutenant governor in council. So they have a much better process now than they did when he was originally released from his sentencing for the first crime. In the 1993 review of his mental capacity, Bruce was deemed to be unremorseful for the two murders that he had committed and was still considered a very significant risk to the public. This finding was upheld again in the 2010 review as well. His review board statement read, It is clear from the evidence that Mr. Hamill presents a very significant risk of danger to the public given the history of two murders while in an untreated psychotic state. Given his resistance to therapeutic treatment, and his complete absence of insight, the least onerous and the least restrictive disposition is to continue detention at the Oak Ridge Division of the Mental Health Center. In 2010, he was given the privilege that he was allowed actually outside on the grounds if he was escorted by staff at all times. Okay. In the last years of his life, Bruce Hamill was named in a class action suit brought against Oak Ridge Hospital for the experimental treatments that were carried out there. In a report for that inquiry on January 8, 2019, experts stated that Bruce was among the very few individuals that had been declared not guilty by reason of insanity and had been let out and murdered again, a dirtbag's unfortunate claim to fame. During the lawsuit proceedings, they tried to determine if those treatments had worsened his mental state and created a more violent madman. 
it was concluded that Bruce's status as a stark raving mad killer was the result of his brain injury sustained during delivery and aggravated by the treatment he received at Oak Ridge. And I would venture to say by the dirtbag Peter as well. He had some influence in there. Yep. Agreed. Bruce Hamill died on May 21st, 2019 in Waypoint Mental Hospital while still under psychiatric care. So he never did get released. Nope. He was considered way too dangerous. Yeah. Likely Mm -hmm. to offend. And that is the chilling case of the true madman dirtbag, Bruce Hamill. The man who was so crazy that it was next to impossible for him not to get caught. That's a wild story. And thanks for following up. You talked about him in your Peter Woodcock case and said you were going to bring us his story. And so it was interesting. I can see how this would have been a total rabbit hole for you while you were researching Peter Woodcock. I just found his case so fascinating with the history of his brain trauma and how it made him unable to control his emotions and how Mm -hmm. that led to the rage that led to his killings. Right. It's just so unfortunate, the Mm -hmm. whole story, because it's not his fault he got that brain injury at birth. No, not at all. And how different would his life had been had he not sustained that injury? Or if his mother hadn't had mental illness of her own and would have allowed him to receive treatment as a child and develop coping mechanisms at an earlier age than we saw from his treatment during his first incarceration that he was capable of being a fully functioning adult. For sure. I think this is one of those cases where absolutely the murderer was created. And you can see through all of the things that happened with him, medically speaking and otherwise, how he turned into this ravenous madman. And that's why I find it so fascinating to dig a little bit deeper and to actually find out what's going on. Because I think Bruce would have been an easy one to kind of write off and say, oh, he's just a crazy man. Right. But to actually yeah. find out well, why, what was happening in his brain to make him that way. Yeah, I agree. And it's not that we're doing this to try and excuse his actions, but it does give us understanding. Mm-hmm. He is still a complete dirtbag. Yeah. But to understand why that can happen or how that can happen is, yeah. is interesting. Exactly. Mm-hmm. We're unburying the motives. That's right. <laughs> that's what we do here. <laughs> and that's what we have for you guys this week. But we hope that you will take some time to check out our social media, to check out our giveaway, and good luck to all of our listeners. And we'll see you again next week. See ya. Bye. If you need it, you let me know. (laughs) (laughs) I have so many cases running around in my brain all the time. (laughs) I'm a little jealous. I haven't come across that in any of my research yet. What's, sorry. Okay, hold on. You're speaking like me. (laughs) Never say never. Bruce. 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 Come here, Bruce. Maybe you should take that out. Maybe I'm too judgmental all the time. <laughs> Will we hear that train? Uh, I don't think we ever do. Okay. All right. <laughs> then, then we will. You watch. I'll be eating my words on that one. <laughs> hey, we're live, pal. And we'd love for you to come check out our podcast, Tales from the Estate. Each week, we talk about our top five favorite somethings. My beautiful wife, Caitlin, likes to share all sorts of random facts. Yeah. Did you know that cows have accents? We did now. But we also review all sorts of snacks and other great things. And so if you love everything random, I think you'd enjoy Tales from the Estate. So come check us out. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Bye. I'm Matt Kundle, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent, almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.